always been into like musical theater. So from a very, very young age, I'd say like, I mean, I was obsessed with Annie at like three. That was like my jam. Like I loved singing the like any song from the musical Annie. So that kind of, for most of my life, I've loved like musicals and, and show tunes and whatnot. But a lot of the music I listen to, it's like funny because I think back now and like how much of like a, a music nerd now I am with like, I because I love so many different types of music now. There's there's really only a few genres of, list of music I don't really listen to. But I think of like growing up in high school or like going through high school, I'm like kind of embarrassed to like talk about the music I liked then because it was like, you know, bubblegum, cheesy pop that, and like I used to see like all of those bands, you know, all those different types of boy bands and musicians live. And it's like funny because it's just like, with looking back at those times, I'm like, you know, that is, I mean, it was the age, you know, it was the age, but I'm like, oh, it's so embarrassing, you know, like, I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah. And it's like, I, I definitely had a lot of like other music I listened to that was on the radio and whatnot, but like what, like I listened to on a daily basis was like pop, you know, and it's like mm -hmm. so different now, you know, I mean, I do like my pop, don't get me wrong, but like, that's not really what I listen to on a daily basis anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. I love that. I feel like we all have our musical guilty pleasures on oh, a playlist just for us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, like, you know, of course I like loved, you know, even just like, cause I'm a, I'm a kid of like, like late eighties, early nineties kids. So it's like, you know, I did listen to, of course, like a lot of the like 90s alternative rock and then like you know also like the classic like female artists like Alanis Morissette you know I think pretty much anyone my in my generation like loved Alanis Morissette and like you know her Jagged Little Pill album so it's like you know I still definitely liked that music this is Musicians Can Thrive a podcast community for anyone seeking to make money in the music industry Musicians, audio engineers, managers, producers, booking agents, everyone across all niches. Welcome. My name is Gabrielle. I'm a singer-songwriter. These stories are for you. I hope they'll help you find new ways to thrive as a musician. Identifying as a musicpreneur, Erin McAndrew has built a career for herself that's resilient, thanks to several different sources of income. I stumbled across her Twitter account one day, and her course offerings caught my eye, especially the one she was promoting when I found her, called Get More Paid Gigs. One of my favorite things we discuss in this episode is why it's so important to separate the kinds of work that you do in one day. Creative work like songwriting and recording uses one part of your brain. And strategic work, like planning your next steps for the quarter and coordinating new gigs or partnerships, uses the opposite side of your brain. Switching between those two kinds of work within the same day makes the work feel harder because your brain has to readjust each time. Also stay on the lookout for when we talk about how Erin leverages the relationship she's built with her most loyal fans to shape her music and the other products she offers to them. So how did you get to the point where music became a part of your life that you were creating music? 
Yeah. So I, well, from a very young age, as I was saying, I loved like show tunes and musical theater. And like from a very, very young age, I was, I loved performing. So it really kind of just morphed into like, you know, I was always in some kind of performing type situation. So whether it was dance, whether it was musicals, whether it was acting classes, you know, so I was always into a lot of things like that. And really, you know, high school, I feel like is, you know, because there's, you go through a lot in high school, and I, um, music kind of became my escape, music became my escape. And that's when I really started like, getting into writing um, songs and like different poems. And that's what really kind of helped me, you know, get through the the things that you go through in high school. But it really wasn't until I was like in college that I really started putting my all the lyrics and, and poems that I've been writing into actual music. So I had been writing for a very long time, but I didn't really have the tools. Like I didn't really know how to play an instrument. So I didn't really actually start like truly writing music and putting those words to music until I was in college and then after college. And really after college was when I really started to pursue my career professionally. And it was just something that was within me and it was a very organic kind of path that happened. And, you know, I had different moments too, where it was like, I had been really active and then I wasn't super active in my music career. And then like, I had one of those like epiphany moments that was like, okay, this is no, this is the path that I need to follow. This is my calling. So Hmm. I think we all have those moments as musicians when we realize that this is what we want to do, you know? Absolutely. Sometimes it is clear where it comes from and sometimes you have no idea, but you just listen to it. Yeah. So one of the things that I struggled with when I was first trying to figure out what does it even look like to build a career for myself as a musician, when I was about 13, YouTube was just sort of hitting the beginning of its leap into enabling DIY musicians to really break ground in ways that they hadn't before. And so there are all these new kinds of ways to build a career. And, you know, when I first imagined being a professional musician, it was, oh, I want to be like the next Stevie Nicks or someone who's really famous going on world tours. And how did you start figuring out what even the options to make money besides gigging? How did you start exploring that? Well, I I love that. I love this question because I, you know, I kind of had that whole thought like you did too, where it was like, oh, this needs to be my path. I need to be signed to a label. I need to have a manager. I need to do this. I need to do that, you know? And, And I found a music coach probably about five years ago at this point, and she was an online musician making all of her money through being online. Like she did not tour or anything like that. So I started, I signed up for her course and took her course and really kind of started seeing my music career as a business and becoming my own entrepreneur in that. So I really started following like what she was teaching and, you know, brought it through for my first release, started to build an email list. And then I really started realizing, oh, this is how this works. This is how I can create a fan base. This is how I can create some buzz around my music and not just like put it out there and hope that people listen to it or put it out there and only have my family and friends listen to it, you know, just in obviously they're going to support you either way, but like, they're not going to be the people that invest in you and your music in that sense. 
as you were getting started, you were playing a lot of paid gigs and that was what sort of enabled you to take the leap and quit your day job. Yeah. But there's also a couple of people that I've met, mostly managers, who, well, let me backtrack. I had this assumption when I first started trying to book gigs that I needed to have like five gigs a month or at least one every weekend in order for people to take me seriously. But then there are some managers that I've met and they pointed out how, you know, if you're not doing cover gigs and just playing your original music, you need to space out gigs so that at least in the same city, you're not playing too frequently so that people can actually be excited about your show. So how do musicians juggle that balance? Because we do need to make money and gigs are a really easy way to do that. Yeah. So my main income when we can gig, obviously, when there's not a pandemic going on, um, (laughs) I play mostly cover gigs. I would say 98% of my gigs are cover gigs. But with that being said, that does not mean you can't play your originals. And I think, to be honest, there's the appeal of wanting to play these different venues that have a name. You know, like I live in LA, so we have the Troubadour, we have the Viper Room, we have the Rainbow, we have the Roxy, like we have the the Whiskey, you know, like we have all these like venues that like everyone that's into music has heard of, you know? Mm -hmm. And yes, it's really cool to say that you've played those places, but a lot of the times you're not going to see you know, because again, if we want to be musicians, we want to make money. Yes, there's to a certain extent, it's great to play these places. But if we have to try and draw a certain amount of people to these venues to guarantee that we're going to make any money, it's that can be a really stressful situation. So that's one of the things that I found when I started playing, I played a few gigs like that. And I could really and I lived in New York City at the time and had a really great network of friends. But it's also New York City, where there's so many things going on, kind of like how it is here in LA. And Austin, I'm sure is also the same same way in in a lot of ways where there's so much live music going on. So I could I really was only able to get, you know, 10, 15 of my friends, unless it was an album release party, then I could obviously get a lot more people. But also, I just found that the venues that I played that were paying me and I was playing cover songs, I was treated a lot better. I was not seen as, you know, just another musician that was playing. Like, you know, I was having great conversations with the people that were there coming to not, and they weren't there necessarily to see me, but once they started listening to me and once I started interacting with them, then that's when you really can find those like, fans that weren't there to see you in the first place, but now buy your album or tip you. And I think personally, like once you let go of the whole, like, obviously again, I'm not downing the whole idea of playing these venues that have a name, but when you book these gigs where, yeah, you're playing mostly covers, I personally think you can find some really, really great fans by playing these gigs because a lot of the times when people are coming to see you, if they don't know you, they don't know your music. Most of the times they're not going to connect with you immediately because of your music personally. They're going to hear you play a cover in a certain way and maybe that brings them in. Maybe they're like, oh, I really like the way that she played 
land side by Fleetwood Mac, you know, you know, mm. I wonder what else she can do. I wonder what her original music sounds like. So it's a way to like intrigue people. And, and I think it's just such a beautiful opportunity. And I honestly, like, I, I love playing. So there are certain places that I love playing. And, and I think I'd actually be like, I'd obviously would love to play those types of venues someday. But right now it's like, it is fun playing all these places where you can find new fans and you don't have to worry about bringing in 50 something people and maybe not making that much money in the end of it all. So I know that was a very long winded answer, but I hope there were some good things in there for, you know, some musicians to chew on that are listening. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing all that. Yeah. I actually grew up in a small town in Montana and there were several musicians there who were playing at least some mix of cover shows and original shows around all kinds of different bars or restaurants or, you know, there's occasional like ski resort or yeah, in the summer it's a ski resort, but like they go hiking because there's no snow. So there's all these places for them to play. And I really saw how Maybe it's because the venue that's hosting that show doesn't have its own kind of egotistical sense of like, you know, we're a hotshot venue. You've got to basically prove that you're worthy of playing here. But also, I feel like those kinds of smaller venues have an appreciation for how live music elevates the ambiance of their space. Yeah. So they treat the musicians better, both in terms of interacting and just paying them. Yes, absolutely. I 100% agree. I can see how that would be some serious motivation to play a lot of cover gigs at places yeah, like and, that. And, and I think it is like, I personally think, and I'm sure a lot of other musicians that play cover gigs will tell you the same, like, because of playing a lot of these gigs and because I had to learn, like, you know, and there's a learning curve, right? Like if you don't really know many covers and you want to start playing cover gigs, you're going to have to learn how to play the song. So really honestly, over time, like me, the fact that I've added, I think I have like, I have at least 250 songs in my repertoire now. And I started with zero, you know, five or six years ago, like, or maybe like one or two, maybe I knew one or two covers, but it's like, it's made me much better musician. It's helped me with my writing as a musician. It's inspired me in different ways and to play different songs in, in different ways. And I think it's just overall just made me a better musician. So it's, it's hard because I know as musicians, we want to play our own music and we don't feel like we should have to play others, but there is such a beauty and, and being able to do that and, you know, enhancing your skills as a musician. And it's also fun too to take a song that's really popular and, put your own spin on it. Like there's certain songs that I'll play and you know, someone will come up to me afterwards. They're like, well, I didn't realize the song you were playing at first. And then I, and then I really liked what you did with it. It was so, it was so different from the original, you know? Mm. So, so you can bring out your, yourself as an artist in these songs as well, even if you are playing covers. So there's nothing. And I, and I feel like there's like this stigma sometimes about it and there shouldn't be, you know, at all in my opinion. (laughs) I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So you got to the point where you were able to support yourself full time off of performing. Mm -hmm. And when did you decide to shift your energy towards creating courses to teach things about gigging and just making money in general to other musicians? 
Yes. So I had always, for while I was at my day job, I actually, so I worked for Lululemon and part of their culture is really ingrained in vision and goal setting. Um, so it's really just like one of the things I did love about working for that company is they work they talk a lot about personal development and growing yourself as a person. So Mm. I've always been someone who's been an avid goal setter. And that was a big part of their core values as a company. And what they would do is they would, you would come in, they'd hire you and you would have somebody coach you on, on your goals and creating goals for yourself. So I actually got really involved in that aspect of the, the business and of the company when I worked there. I then was like, you know, I really see value in this. I would love to create a course. So I created a goal setting course. And from there, I I realized over time, especially as I started becoming a full-time musician and really started getting into it and figuring things out for myself, I saw definitely a gap for certain things that's not out there that I tried to find myself, like how to book more gigs and having a course as to how to book more gigs and like cover gigs more so, you know? So Mm. I found in creating those courses, I was like, I know that these can be valuable. I know that these can be helpful. So I love being a coach. I love being a musician. They're two major aspects of me, but it also is a way to to create another income for myself as well as performing. So, you know, going through all of this that we've been going through these past few months, luckily this is something that I've been able to to have as well. Um, In addition, and that's something that I definitely, not necessarily coaching, but like it's something I definitely encourage other musicians to do is to have that other stream and form of income that's not specifically just your music. A, because it's another stream of income and B, it also just, I think, enhances what you do and gives you even more, you know, street cred in a certain sense. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I found that the musicians who are able to balance and develop at least two sources of income, often three or sometimes four, they're the musicians who are more resilient over the long term. Yeah. And I've really found that to be something that as I learned about it, well, because I feel like there's this, I guess you would call it a stigma around having a day job. And there's like the sense of shame that comes with saying, oh, you know, I'm not quote, making my full-time income off of say performing. But if you have a day job or just a supplementary stream of income to performing or sync licensing or songwriting, whatever your main focus is, it helps you make space for what's important to you in a way that I feel like I didn't even know was an option. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes too, it's shifting the perspective of like what your day job is and like you know, what it's doing for you, like a way to kind of think about it is like your day job is fueling your dream. You know what I mean? It's like helping you be able to, to, to invest into your career. You know, it's helping give you the funds obviously to live on, but to then be able to invest back into your music career. And, and honestly, to a certain extent, like I've said this in, in other interviews that like my cover gigs to a certain extent. Yeah. They're my main source of income, but you can almost see that as your quote unquote day job, because 
obviously my original music is like my complete is like my heart and soul you know what we do as musicians and singer songwriters so really that can be looked at as a day job in itself you know or teaching lessons you know so so it's it's i think it's shifting your perspective and there's no shame in having a day job you know when you get to a certain point where you don't need one anymore that's a wonderful time you know and it's because maybe you didn't love the day job or maybe it's just you want you want to be able to do music full time but there i don't think there should be any shame around that because it's helping you fuel your dream and it's helping you get to where you need to go you know as long as you're balancing your time between the day job and pursuing your music career full force, then I think there shouldn't be any shame around that. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because yeah. I feel like musicians need to hear that more. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I think that that is like, you know, we see, and and I'm sure you've seen this before too, you know, you see all these people out there that judge musicians and are like, oh, you're a musician. That's a tough life. And it's like, yeah, it's not an easy path, but obviously I know that going into it. But mm-hmm. you never those people never say that if they were to go and meet like a face so, you know, name your favorite favorite musician. They would never say that to that musician because they've gotten to that success level. But they don't see where they got to to where they are now. You know what I mean? Like they were in our shoes at one point. The, these musicians were in our shoes at one point and you know, probably had these people say these things to them too it is hard. I feel like there is this negative stigma sometimes that, Oh, you can't make money as a musician. What are you, you know, what are you doing? And, and that's just not true. I, I actually, I've been at gigs and I've had people say that to me and it's like, actually, this is my full-time income. And say, if you are, if you do have a day job and you're gigging a few times a month, you can say that to them. They don't need to know what's going on, you know? And again, not that there should be shame around that, but you know, I think as time goes on, that stigma and hopefully, in my opinion, will subside, hopefully, you know? Well, slowly but surely, we'll keep chipping away at it and proving that the starving artist thing is a myth. Yes, absolutely. We've made it about halfway through the show. And we're going to have a quick pause. Ads are irritating distractions, so they'll never be a part of the Musicians Can Thrive podcast. Thank you for listening. To make sure you get new episodes as soon as I release them, subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. I'm so glad I get the honor of sharing these musicians' stories, and it would mean a lot if you would be willing to help me share them. Spotify has this awesome feature where you can share podcast episodes directly to Instagram stories. So if you're willing, tell your followers about your favorite episode. Last thing. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leaving a quick review helps other musicians learn about Musicians Can Thrive. I appreciate your support. Back to the show. I actually, a few months ago when I first crossed paths with you, I signed up for one of your free email courses and it was really interesting to see how you walked people through the process of really just learning how to sell themselves as a musician. So I feel like that's one of the things that we struggle with the most because it's quote art and yeah, putting a price on it somehow taints it for a lot yeah. of people. And one of my favorite things that you 
pointed out is the need for a system that a musician can sort of build for themselves to help them earn the trust of people who they want to have in their audience, who they want to have buy music or merch or services from them. And I'd love to know how you started to develop that for yourself. I have a very type A personality. So I'm an organizational freak. Like I've always been like extremely organized. I have a planner, like a planner, a calendar, and then a uh, and then a planner for my planner. You know, I'm I'm extremely organized. So right now, obviously, I I don't know if I told I think I told you, but I just became a mom. So this has really been um, an interesting time in that sense because all of that has just been thrown out the window right now because the baby runs my day. I can right? imagine. <laughs> but you know, I'm glad that I do have some of these systems to be able to to put back in place once we kind of find even more of a, of a rhythm. And, and again, I'm sure once we find a rhythm, that's going to change again too. So it's learning to be flexible, which has definitely challenged me as a type A type person. But anyway, I digress. So that's kind of like the first thing is really like, that's kind of my personality. So systems just work for me. And it's really just creating these things that work for you. So like one of the things that I started in this time management course that I was talking about is I understand that not everybody is like me where they don't have checklists, they don't have to do lists, they don't have a planner for their planner, you know, so (laughs) in my in these courses, I really talk about like, how to be strategic with what you have and what you're willing to do. One of the things I start off with is like having a strategic to do list. So obviously, you have your to do list and things that you need to get done during the day. But what are like your top three tasks that you need to get done that specific day, you know, so starting from there and then going on. So that's kind of like the basis of where I, you know, where I start everyone is like, Obviously, everyone knows about to-do lists. So how can you make that more strategic? So that's a way you can start creating your system from there. And then and then really like the thought process from there is how can you build upon that and make it even more powerful? And so really creating that type of time management system over time really helped me to really crush my music goals and and get a lot of things done because I was just really organized about it. And again, I know not everybody is super type A like me. So it's like finding that balance that works for you. But then as far as like, even like the gigging system, I just wanted to find something that I could keep track of all the places I reached out to who I heard back from when I needed to follow up with them. And again, like it's a way of looking at it as a business, you know, and and looking at all of these different venues that you need to reach out to and and whether you're going to be a good fit for them and and what location they're at, you know, so like, if you want to get paid a certain amount, if like this, there's this venue that's three hours away and they're only going to pay you this much, is that going to be worth it? So it's like keeping all of these, these things organized, I think is, is so crucial as a musician to, to be able to help move your career forward. And I know not a lot of musicians want to hear this, but it's really looking at your music career as a business and, and running it that way. So it's like, yes, I have these time management systems and that's part of my business. And then I have my gig booking system that I've created and that's part of my business. So it's having those things and then really like having the systems in place and processes in place to create those engagements with your fans and and showing up for them consistently. That's like one of the biggest things. So like, you know, I email my list 
every Wednesday. They know they're going to hear from me basically every Wednesday. They're going to get an email from me and it's going to be generally something, you know, inspirational, motivational. I might throw in like a music video every once in a while, but it's really engaging with that list in a way. And also polling them and seeing what they want and what they need and what they're looking for. Because ultimately like, if they can gain your trust, that's great. And they'll probably buy your album down the road or they'll support you in some other way. And, and it's also, it's a process too. So you can't just expect that you're going to put things out there and that you're going to have an email list and that people are immediately going to buy your album. You have to build their trust over time. So um, I hope that answered everything <laughs> from with your question. Yeah, I appreciate you going into all that detail. I asked because I ended up becoming a marketer sort of by accident. And it was originally just as my day job to fund the EP that I was working on at the time. And I started realizing that I basically had been telling myself this story for years that, oh, I'm a creative person and I need to just trust that process and let it be really flowy and freeform. But actually, turns out, I'm a very type A person. <laughs> yeah. And having a system in place, it gets to the point where it's habitual. You know what comes before and what needs to come after. And I feel like it makes space so that you don't have to think about the details of managing things as much. And so yeah. having that system in place as counterintuitive as it sounds, it helps you become more creative because your brain power is just, you know, not on managing details. You can just trust the habits of the system. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good point. And, and, and like, I think that's the thing too, with the musicians were like, Oh, we're creative people. We don't need to focus on the business, but I think that there can be a healthy balance. You know, one of the things I also teach is like not doing it all in one day, like not doing like working on like say I'm going to write five songs today and I'm going to come up with, I'm going to email and, you know, work on my budget and work on all my financial things for, for my music career. Like it's not good to do all that on one day because that's working with two different sides of our brains. After a while, like our brain's just going to get tired, you know? So, <laughs> so it is finding that delicate balance because I have had musicians that I've coached where they're like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Like, no wonder why I was exhausted half the time because, you know, you're trying, your brain's working on overtime, trying to do the creative things and trying to do, the, you know, business side and analytical things. I think also the thing that I really love, as you pointed out, that musicians need to take the time to earn the trust of their audiences. I feel like that's a sort of, entrepreneurial just business perspective that we forget to think about as musicians our first thought is I hope they like my music yeah. and we don't realize that earning people's trust to get them to even press play on the song or listen to the whole video on social media or come to the show that's that's the first step Exactly. Well, and it's like, what's going to keep them sticking around? You know what I mean? Like what's going to make them like want to show up for you every week or every day and like listen to your music. Some, there are some people that are just like, you know what? 
I, I love her music. You know, I don't necessarily follow what she does every day, but I really love, I like, I love her music. I'll buy her music. So you have some people like that, but then you have the people that are actually like invested in you and your career and show up for you all the time, you know? So it's like creating those relationships. Like I have a Patreon community and I have some of my supporters and one of my like parts of my brand, I don't, talk about it as much on my Instagram anymore because my Instagram is focused more on my coaching. I obviously do have some music stuff in there, but for a while when I wasn't coaching, part of my brand was wine. Like I'm a huge wino. So that also, I attracted some, some fans of mine that liked my music, but are also, we're also big wine fans. So it's like one of those things where it's like, what other connections can you find with, with, Mm. with your, with the people that are interested in your music? So Part some of my Patreon patrons, I was telling them about this documentary. Yes, like so, I have a broad broadcast that I do every week just for them, and I was talking to them yesterday about this because they both love, also love wine. So I was like, I just watched this documentary about wine yesterday that I think you guys would love, and it's really kind of creating those connections and that like camaraderie with your fans. Like it doesn't have to be this like I am the musician, you are the fan. You know, I am the musician, you are the supporter. It can be a friendship. You know, obviously there's a certain line that shouldn't be crossed, but like there, there's so such a beautiful thing out there now to a certain extent with social media where you can create these, these friendships with your fans and your supporters. And over time, it's like, they, they have your back. They'll trust you is immediately as soon as your album comes out, they'll be the first ones to buy it maybe even before your, you know, your own phone family. So it's like really building that trust. It takes more time, but it can be so much more rewarding and so much more lasting than just having, you know, not building that trust. That feels like one of the more significant nuances that someone has pointed out as I try and delve into this question of how do musicians make money and thrive, not just make it from paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. The the funny thing is hearing you talk about that honestly makes me think about how in marketing as any other kind of business, if you want to hold people's attention so that they're a loyal customer to you or a loyal fan, if you will, You need to have different kinds of content. You need to tap into the different kinds of interests that they have. And if you try to be for everyone, things get so watered down that no one actually resonates. Yep. And that just translates so seamlessly to what you just said. I, I really, I love that. Yeah. Well, and really it's like, again, it's seeing it as a business, you know? So it's like, you know, think about any major company like that you're loyal to, And say that it's some kind of thing where they're bringing out a new product or they're bringing out, you know, something else that, and and you have their trust. So like, you know, even something as much as like some kind of, you know, beauty product, say there's some line that you, that, you know, some kind of like face cream that you, that you use or moisturizer. And then they come out with this whole other line of things, you know, like you're more likely to. To, if you're loyal to that brand, you're more likely to continue with them if they have something else that you they come out with because you trust their brand. You know what I'm saying? So it's really like you have to think about like I think as musicians, we don't think about those certain things, but it makes so much sense if we start to view our music career as a business and and creating that music. You know, here's another example. 
and this is in the music realm. So my husband is actually a huge ACDC fan, like he loves ACDC. Mm. And they, uh, over time, if you think about it, if you listen to a lot of their music, it doesn't change that much as the albums go on. You know, mm. it's a lot of, it all kind of has a very similar sound. And that's, and, and you know, my husband, obviously, he's the one that gave this knowledge to me. I didn't, I didn't know before, but he said, you know, ACDC writes their music for their fans. You know, they don't write it really for themselves as much anymore because they, they write it for their fans because they know what their fans like. And they so they keep on making things that they know their fans will like because they know at the end of the day, that's going to get more people in the stadiums to see them. That's going to gain their trust of their fans because they keep making music that they love. And, you know, at the end of it all, they make more money. So it's like, yes, they, to a certain extent, maybe like that dampens a little bit of what of their artistry because maybe they want to create more music that's a little bit more, um, you know, personal. But, oh, but at the same time, it's still a business and, and they're writing these catering to what your fans love and making music that feels good to you. So I, you know, I actually did have like quite a difference between my first release and my second release, but I still had some elements in there that I kept obviously. But one of the things that I do also is because I feel so comfortable talking to some of these fans that I've had for years now, I actually asked their honest opinion, like, what do you guys think of this? Like, it, as opposed to like my last music, do you, do you like it better? Do you like what I was doing before? Like I actually, cause I really care what they think because they're the ones that, that have been listening to me and support me. So it's, it is finding that balance and, and seeing what they like and then getting their feedback and then seeing how I can, I can utilize what they've told me and still make it genuine as an art, like make it feel genuine to me as an artist in what I'm creating next. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I love how you have that direct feedback loop with your fans. Yeah. I think it's so important. It sounds like Patreon's become a really valuable tool for you to do that. Yeah. Oh, it definitely has. And like, I think one of the things that musicians get caught up with is like, they have so many fans and that's not necessarily the case. I have maybe 25 Patreon patrons. It's not a lot, but the ones that are my Patreon patrons, like they're my super supportive fans where like they show up every Friday, you know, they support me. And I know that I can reach out to them and be like, what do you guys think of this song? Like, should I change this? Should I change that? Like, because I know that they've got my back and that they're, that they're willing to support me. So again, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have so many, so many supporters in order to be successful, you know, and you can, you can have like a handful of people that are like, you know, going to be there for you, going to support you and really help you. And, and it's, you know, I think that's another thing that musicians sometimes get caught up with. And it's like you, sometimes you, you don't need all of that, you know, and, and sometimes having 
the less is more type thing, you know? That makes me think about this concept that I've been observing in the past couple of weeks and thinking about how I want to apply it to my own music. And basically, it's just the sense that whether you call it the minimum viable audience or looking for your hundred or thousand true fans, finding ways to lean into what makes you unique as a person, not just what makes your music unique, why people would care to spend their time with you, why they're going to develop a true fondness for you as a quote brand. It's really going to become necessary as social media and music. I mean, you just, you have to break through the noise somehow. Absolutely. Well, and it's like, again, why should I listen to you? What makes me want to stick around? What about you do I like that is going to keep me around? You know what I mean? What things do I have in common with you that we can talk about that I can like experience or learn from you, you know? So it's like all these different little things that again, tie into marketing, right? It's really kind of finding that again, finding that balance, but a lot at the end of the day, like, yeah, they can like your music, but it is about what they like about you and what keeps, you know, you around or what keeps them around you, you know, like think about the different people that, that you follow or whoever's listening to this, you know, who inspires you and who motivates you. And it's like, maybe they are a musician and you like their music, but what about them makes you stick around? You know, I'm sure like for many of us, like the different musicians that we, that we like, you know, obviously we love their music, but what else about them do we love that again, makes us keep going back and buying their music more. So I think it's just something as musicians that we need to think about. And, and, and a lot of music coaches are talking about this and, and the importance of it. Because it is, it's really important, especially nowadays because of everything going on. So many people are online. So it is like, what makes you stand out from the others? Like, why should I listen to you? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In one of your emails, I saw you use this word, musicpreneur. Yes. And it got me so excited because... Since I did grow up the daughter of an entrepreneur, I've had this side of my worldview where thinking about things as a business is very normal for me. But the term musicpreneur feels so much more specific in a way that, you know, yes, you you do think about your music as a business. I just, it really resonates. So how did you get to the point where you coined that term? Well, I can't take credit for that term personally. So I'm going to put that out there. There is a guy I took a course from his name's Carlos Castillo. And he has it's called a musicpreneur apprentice program. So that he used his used that one. Um, and there's this other coach, her name is Suze. Her last name is escaping me right now. Um, but she also used that term. It's actually it's pretty it's a pretty common term nowadays in the like, musicpreneur world, if you want to say that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can't, I definitely cannot take credit for that term. But when I did hear it, I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. Because that, that is what a lot of us as musicians are nowadays is we are entrepreneurs, but musicpreneur sounds kind of cool, you know? So yeah, so I can't take credit for that term at all, because it was definitely made up before 
you know, before me. Um, I heard it before from other people, <laughs> but it's a very, it's very creative. And I think it, it hits the nail on the head for us as musicians. I feel like it directly empowers a DIY musician in a way that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's just so needed. Absolutely. And I think it kind of gives musicians the space to realize that they can be entrepreneurs in that way, you know, and there mm-hmm. is so many ways that we can take our music careers in an, entre- in an entrepreneurial way. Yeah, for sure. So as a musician, as a musicpreneur, what are some of your favorite ways of making money from music besides gigging? I really enjoy, obviously enjoy my, my coaching. So that's like a certain aspect of me. And then it's just, you know, I, I get the reward obviously of coaching these musicians. So it's, it's more that than the money, obviously, but it's still a form of income. I really like the, uh, you know, when I go through the process of gaining someone's trust and then they actually purchase my album, that is still like, And it's like my actual album. Like I have the physical copies that I send them and it's like a bundle where it has both of my albums an autograph photo, you know, guitar pick, all those things. So I get, I honestly get so excited when people purchase that actual, like the physical copies because it doesn't happen that often. Like people will buy your album on, you know, Apple music or Amazon or any of those places or Bandcamp. But it's like, it's a really satisfying feeling when people buy my physical copies on my website, you know? So that's, that's, I think, again, it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does happen, it's really exciting. So obviously it's not a steady stream of income, but, but it's still a form of income, you know, and it still happens every once in a while. So that's definitely a great way. And uh, even just uh, live streaming, I haven't done too much of it in the past few months, even though this is the time when most people do. Um, I've obviously had my hands full otherwise. You got um, a newborn. <laughs> born yeah so I really haven't been able to go to go live except for my patreon broadcast but yeah I mean that in the past like has been a, a fun way as well because you, you know you throw up a virtual tip jar and this was obviously before all of this happened so so people were a little bit more the market wasn't as saturated in that way so you know the virtual tip jar worked pretty well and I'm not saying it doesn't work well now but I think you have to be a little more creative right now just because the there's so many people trying to do the same thing, you know? Mm. Yeah. So for the musicians that you're serving and helping to learn how to make money off gigging, how are you helping them navigate through the COVID aftermath where live streaming is getting probably a little oversaturated and they still can't really play in actual venues yeah, so that's, I mean, that's definitely a, a challenge for sure. Um, for for a lot of them, it's just, it is kind of going back to like, what can you do that makes you stand out? And what platforms can you utilize to get the most bang for your buck? So there is different platforms out there where you can actually like charge people and that you have to actually like, quote unquote, sell tickets for them to be able to come in to your live show. So that's kind of the option, a lot of the options I've been giving the musicians that I coach, other than the other streams of income that you can still be making without gigging live. Another great route to go to is that there's been musicians where they have gigged at certain venues 
for a while. And those venues would have them go live on their Instagram or their Facebook, or, you know, maybe they have like a Facebook group. So that's been another thing I've been seeing where musicians have actually gone live on say like a winery's web, you know, a winery's Instagram page or like something like that. So I think that that's kind of another cool way that you can spin it because you know, eventually, hopefully that winery will be able to have you play there again. And if they were just catching you live on, you know, Facebook or Instagram, maybe that won't make you money in that moment. Or maybe you do make some money from tips, you know, virtually. But you know, I think it's important for musicians to think about obviously what how they can make money now during all of this with those other like live stream opportunities, but also like what opportunities and doors it can open up for them down the road, you know, like, Another example on this, but this is a gigging example, but I still want to kind of just put things in perspective. There's, you know, this whole thing around playing for free, right? Mm -hmm. Since we don't want to play for free, but I will still play a show for free if it's going to open other opportunities for me, if it's going to open other doors for me. So there's like, you know, different festivals and, and street fairs and, you know, venues that I've played at where I haven't gotten paid, but I'm like, I know playing this gig is going to open up the opportunity for me to play at this music festival or the opportunity for me to play at another venue that's just like this. So I think that that's something to think about even with live streaming, you know, like say if you did play at a venue or, you know, if there's some kind of group, you know, I, I noticed there was like Facebook groups of, and it was like a virtual coffee shop type thing. You know, you don't know the type of people that are hanging out in these places and what kind of gig opportunities that it can open up for you, you know? Mm. So, so I think that, that that's one of the important things to think about is even if you're not making that direct income right there, it can open up our, uh, other opportunities for you down the road. So that's just a, a, another perspective to think about and another thing to think about when when it comes to to doing those types of things. I'm glad you shared that. I can see how even from the venue's perspective, if it's a small winery or coffee shop, they're having a hard time keeping their customers engaged too because if they can't come in, that's yeah. like at least half the reason, not just the beverage. And yeah. so if they can have a musician basically entertain their customers that's valuable for them yeah honestly I could ask you like a million more questions (laughs) (laughs) I like this yeah this has been great so far I definitely enjoy like answering these types of questions and you know kind of helping musicians out in any way I can you know because there it is like it is a tough world to navigate but there are so many opportunities that we have well it's really enjoyable to talk with someone who has a very similar perspective to what I do. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. As we wrap things up, where is the best place for musicians to find you or your music online? So um, you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. My tag is at I am Aaron McAndrew. So that's the same for both platforms. I always say like Twitter is more of my like music focused page. So I uh, post a lot of different stuff with my personal music on it. And I also ask a lot of fun questions every day. So if you, if you know, you like answering fun random questions, that's a good place to be. I don't really share too much about my coaching on there because that's more for like my music supporters. But my Instagram, if you are a musician, I've been a little, obviously a little busy lately, but I'm going to be starting back up and, you know, adding a lot more content for musicians. So on my Instagram, so follow me there. 
for my music, actually, if you go to freemusicfromerin.com and just put your name and email in, you can get a free download of my music. So you can take a listen to that. And I think, and like, I'm obviously on all the like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, and all those things too. So if you like listening to music there, you can find me there too. I love it. And you have a website for your coaching practice too, don't you? I do. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. So it's goal for your dreams. Yeah. So just G O A L for your dreams.com. And you can see the different types of coaching that I offer as well as the different types of programming. And again, if you have any questions about any of that, you know, send me a DM and whatnot, and we can start chatting about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Erin. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and share your perspective on things. Of course. And thank you so much for having me on. This was great. Glad to hear it. It was my pleasure. Please check the show notes for links to find Erin McAndrews music, social media, and all that fun stuff. One last thing before you go today. There are techniques, strategies, and routines that work best for different people. With that in mind, I encourage you to consider this. Erin has built a community where she can get direct feedback from her fans, and especially from her super fans. Now, the name escapes me at the moment, but there is an author who illustrated this concept of 1,000 true fans. And he defines a true fan as someone who will buy literally anything that you have for sale. doesn't matter if it's a CD or a t-shirt, concert tickets, whatever it is, they will buy it. They believe in you that much. So, when you are trying to build income so that you can support your music and the creation of your music over a long period of time so that you can build a career out of this, a life designed around music. Being able to communicate directly with those super fans, those true fans of yours, that's going to go a long way towards helping you decide what kind of music you create when you release it, what kinds of merch you offer. One example is one of my favorite artists is a woman named Casey Musgraves. And she's sort of a country artist, but she also is open about her section of her fans that are stoners. So she is starting to offer... Well, she hasn't offered it yet, but she's announced it on Instagram that she's going to offer a grinder and it's going to have a logo that matches one of her most iconic songs, which has a line that goes happy and sad at the same time. And she wouldn't know to do that if she hadn't been paying attention to her super fans, if she hadn't recognized there is a demand there that if she can offer them something to satisfy that need, they will absolutely give her money for it. And that's not to say that every decision you make needs to be driven by, okay, how am I going to make money off of this? But when it comes to the big decisions, the decisions that do impact your income, 
being able to directly communicate with your true fans, it makes those decisions stronger and more well-informed. Because at the end of the day, if you have a thousand true fans, it is absolutely possible to support your entire life off of the income from those 1,000 people. So, I look forward to seeing what kind of merch or live streamed experiences or COVID safe concerts that you put together based on what your fans have told you that they want.